Let's pause. Lord, make us receptive to your voice, your word, and your spirit. Amen. The man drew near me almost conspiratorially. You see, Reverend Atkins, he said, at the end of a long and rather torrid story, I have faith. And he was declaring his certainty about something yet to be. But not long before that, I'd had a situation where another person had said hotly and with some frustration to me, I just don't think I believe this. I haven't got the faith. What is faith? Is it something that you can concoct or create by the spiritual gritting of teeth, by resolve, if you don't feel you've got faith, is it your fault? Or if faith is a gift from God, is it God's fault? I want this evening just briefly to focus on some aspects of faith and how we find it used in the New Testament and especially used by St. Paul in the New Testament. At its simplest, faith is often equated in the New Testament as loyalty. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he inquires about their faith. That is, he wants to know if their loyalty, their commitment to Christ, is standing in the face of the persecutions that they're undergoing. So having faith clearly involves steadfastness. Faith is the enduring of truth in Jesus Christ, sometimes when buffeted by circumstances that might lead you to believe that you would ditch that faith and that steadfastness. We can think of a couple where one partner is caring for their spouse in sickness and in health and all that. They perhaps get carer's allowance or attendance allowance and for many, many years now they have looked after one to the other. Or the adult, looking after an aged parent going up a generation, or perhaps a disabled child going down a generation. And we talk of their faithfulness, usually in terms of the steadfastness and the loyalty to that relationship. When St. Paul uses the term faith in the New Testament, he's often referring to the relational quality of loyalty, steadfastness. And in some measure, the faith talked of in the New Testament has all those qualities. But not just that. Faith, when Paul uses it, very often means belief. And belief means, in the simplest terms, the conviction that something is true or right. Paul, for instance, tells the Corinthians in those famous passages that we read very often on Easter Day that if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain. 
It's founded on something which is not true. And therefore, faith becomes impossible because it's founded on nothingness. Faith, therefore, is often used by Paul as a kind of assent that the Christian gospel you believe is true. And again, we use this this theme of faith in everyday life. You listen to someone talking about something and it sounds rather remarkable or they give you some facts and figures about something. They have very little proof, just their word. And whether you believe them or not actually depends largely on their character. If you know them and you regard them to be reliable and you know them to be trustworthy and you know them to be not bonkers, then the chances are that you'll turn around and say, actually, I don't know a lot about this, but I'll take their word for it. Faith, as used in the New Testament, has something to do with the belief that the gospel in its nature is true, that it can, if you like, be rightly believed. C.S. Lewis was getting at this fact that the Gospels and the person of Jesus particularly can be rightly believed when he wrote this in the Screwtape Letters. I am trying here, he wrote, to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil in hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord, Lord, and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human being. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Belief, steadfastness, loyalty, And thirdly, when Paul uses the term faith in the New Testament, he often refers to what might be described as an indestructible hope. We walk, he writes in the passage that Judith read from us from 2 Corinthians, by faith, not by sight. And the whole passage, one of those wonderful images that Paul concocts in the epistles, the whole image is of a tent, And the tent in biblical images uh, is, is a rich one. In the Old Testament, the tent is used for the idea that you are a pilgrim people following the call of God. And that you are on pilgrimage and therefore you cannot set down roots. Because just as the tabernacle wends its way through the wilderness and you have to uproot the tents and then plant them again, so you must go wherever the call of God leads and wherever the presence of God is most found. That's why in the New Testament, when you get to the images about the transfiguration, 
Peter is made out to have missed the point completely when he says, do you want us to build some tents here? And Jesus turns around and says, why do we even need tents? We're not staying. Now here, Paul uses and extends that image of the tent, that transitory thing. But that transitory thing whose main aim is to pursue the work of God, to draw near to the presence of God as the human body. It's true that the Pauline Augustinian tradition is now often criticised, and somewhat rightly, for saying that we dismiss bodily reality too much and we exalt spiritual reality too much. That we haven't got time for the here and now, that this flesh and blood is of no consequence whatsoever. I don't think that's what Paul really says. But he's certain that the earthly tent in which God has wonderfully, a little lower than the angels, garbed us, is a means to a greater end. And that is to discern and know and come to know better God's purposes. And the sting in the tail for him in Corinthians is that at the end of time, there will be that day of accountability where God says, so how did you use the tent then? now that you have no further use for it. And all this is cast in Paul's understanding of the hope of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. That doesn't mean you close your eyes as you go out of church. I'll tell you, you'll walk into a lamppost. But it means that the eyes of faith, given a Christian, bring a dimension of looking at the world and understanding the deep meanings of things that set you apart from somebody who just sees it in two dimensions, as it were. That is what I think the man who was so certain was saying to me. I hope, he says, I hope my hope is so certain that I have complete faith that that will become so. Loyalty, belief, hope, and fourthly, trust. Without a doubt, the most popular use Paul makes of the word faith in the epistles is when he uses it to mean a total trust, an absolute acceptance and reliance upon the word and the will and the knowledge and the direction that God gives you. Now that's not easy at all. Faith here means betting your life that there is a God and betting your life on the fact it's true. I always remember the first time I came across uh, an American Wesleyan scholar who later became my friend. And I said to him, or I was in a class and someone said to him, what is a Christian? And he said, a Christian is someone who staked their life on the fact that this gospel thing is true. There's that, uh, there's that old preacher's story that I just remind you of this evening again about Charles Blondin, the great 
American trapeze artist in the 1850s who wowed and made a fortune, this is not often known, but made an absolute fortune by repeatedly walking the near quarter of a mile between Canada and America over Niagara Falls. Apparently, huge crowds on both sides gathered, and he started, therefore, to charge them, which is why he finished up a very rich man. He once crossed the rope on a, in a sack. He once went across it on stilts. Another time, apparently, he rode across it on a bicycle, and he once even reputedly carried a stove and cooked an omelette midway over the falls. On July the 15th, 1859, Blondin walked backwards across the tightrope to Canada and returned from Canada to America pushing a wheelbarrow. And then he went back and did it blindfold. It was on this occasion that back in Canada he asked for some audience participation. The crowds had watched him and oohed and aahed as he walked across the falls and now he asked for the volunteer who is going to get in the wheelbarrow. It's said that he asked his audience the deceptively simple question when they've just watched him come, come across it twice. Do you believe I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? Oh, yes, of course, we say. Then who will get in it? How do we get to that stage of total reliance and acceptance and absolute trust? Well... We play a part, and God plays a part. It's not all down to us and gritting teeth and saying, I will have faith, I will have faith, I will trust, as if you can concoct it like some litany. Though God will not make us faithful if we resist all attempts of God to give us faith. But it's not all up to God in that God has chosen to bless with increasing faith, those who cooperate with God himself. It's quite clear through the parable of the mustard seed, that smallest seed of all, that Jesus views all faith beginning with small beginnings, but is a thing which is capable of growth. That when you feed faith with the constituent bits that make it grow, you become a person of ever greater faith. Therefore, the partnership is between a receptive subject and a generous God. Where can we start? Faith begins, I think, with receptivity. If you look at nearly all the hymns that we've chosen this evening, there's not just an allusion to faith, there's a plea to God that we somehow become open and receptive to what God wants to do. Almost as if we recognize that the very first barrier that most of us have to faith is an innate closeness to the possibility. How many of us say almost permanently to God in a spiritual sense, well, I'm just not in the mood. I'm, I don't really want to listen to you. I'm not really bothered if I have huge faith which can move mountains. I'm doing all right moving molehills or walking up and down them. For faith to flourish, there must be, says Paul and all our hymn writers, a willingness to hear the call of faith and the offer of grace. 
I recall some friends just recently, they were around at our house, uh, married couple, they were arguing, uh, arguing about whether a particular show was good or not, and they'd been to see it. And they were urging us to see it, except that the wife thought it was the most marvellous thing that she'd been to, and the husband thought it was dire. And eventually, when they were having this little banter about whether we ought to go see it and whether we were going to invest in 50 quid or throw 50 pounds down, down the drain, she turned quite heatedly to her husband and said, well, you were determined you wouldn't like it from the moment we went out the door. And therefore, he didn't. I recall my own conversion to Christ. I was 17, and within a matter of weeks was on a mission band doing small amounts of testimony giving and the very, very, very beginnings of sermons, the first of which lasted one minute, 43 seconds. Oh, you say, how I wish for that day again. I kept my first testimony and when we were moving house, I found it. It was written out in my own hand on a tatty piece of paper. It begins like this. I must have heard the gospel many times, but it, it, it is as if I heard it for the very first time. Receptivity is the beginning of all faith. If you do not have faith, are you able to pray first and foremost for the receptivity to even receive faith? Because I think that's where we would begin. Secondly, faith deepens when that receptivity affects your mental ascent. When it becomes possible for you to metaphorically begin to move towards the wheelbarrow. This is the stage further from receptivity. It means that your receptivity has become such that it's no longer automatic for your life to rebel or say that this is for someone else, but to honestly seek and grow and say, Lord, if this is for me, I receive it. Now what do I do with it? When we hear religious words or stories or people bearing testimony, do we mentally move to assent and receive or to close down and switch off? This is not ditching your mind or becoming mindless in the things of faith. It is in the way of the old saints to train your mind to discern what God is saying on the basis that what God is saying is actually the most important thing that anyone is saying to you at all. But mental assent itself is sometimes not enough because sometimes it doesn't issue in any action or any change. So thirdly, faith that is not found simply in mental assent needs to move to a stage where then what we do, how we act, how we live, is affected because of our receptivity and our openness to change. In mature faith, a person is receptive to the Christian truth, tunes their hearts and minds to it, to borrow a phrase from Wesley, agrees internally that it is true, even though they might not at this moment fully understand it or stand within it, and then spends themselves in time of total yieldedness to begin to demonstrate that it is true. Because from little beginnings in faith, 
large things grow. We know that. Jesus gave us that parable about a mustard seed and said to us, so it is with faith. A mature faith has a small beginning. So take heart. We require not so much a great faith as initially faith in a great God who says to us in Christ, if you just begin with the mustard seeds, I can grow that. As an unknown writer said, little faith will bring your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Amen.